This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Tim Alberta is one of the country's best political reporters. He's currently a staff writer at The Atlantic and former chief political reporter at Politico. Though his expertise teases stories from Washington, D.C.'s most powerful politicians, Alberta has his roots in Michigan. He is the son of an evangelical pastor. And it was his experience in the evangelical church that powerfully shaped him and has given him unique insights into how politics have shaped, or even mutated, as Alberta might say, the American evangelical church. His new book is about just that. It's called The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. Tim Alberto, welcome back to On Point. Magna, thank you so much for having me. I was wondering if you would start by telling us uh, a little bit more about your growing up. Your father, as I mentioned, was the, the founder and senior pastor of the church you grew up in, the Cornerstone Church in Brighton, Michigan. What were the ways in which um, your life in the, or, or the church was infused into your life, Tim? Yeah, I mean, I, I like to joke that I was raised in the church, physically, literally raised in the church. So my mother was also on the staff there. She was the director of the women's ministry, and I was the youngest of uh, my siblings. And so, you know, my entire life, I mean, I'm talking from the time I was, you know, f- five years old um, until the time I moved away for college. Um, you know, it was playing hide-and-seek in the church, uh, church uh, you know, rec areas. It was um, doing my homework there after school. It was bringing dates there during junior high and high school. Mm-hmm. I, ev- I even worked as a janitor at the church uh, for a year while I was attending community college after high school. Literally so, carved your name into the church. <laughs> I did, yeah. I still, get, I still get grief about this. But, yeah, when I was like, I think I was like nine years old, um, I, yeah, I took a pocket knife and I carved my initials into the brickwork of the narthex right outside the sanctuary. Um, and it's still there to this day. <laughs> so um, your childhood physically growing up in the church uh, tells us a little something about spiritually what your childhood and, and um, uh, boyhood was like. I mean, what was your experience of uh, the Christianity preached by your father, uh, your personal experience of Jesus like? You know, it's interesting. Um, I I think probably uh, other pastors' kids listening, uh, they will certainly get this. But even people who grew up really inside the church, uh, as I did, will relate to what I'm saying here when I just observe that, in a way, I don't remember a time when I didn't know Jesus. I don't remember a time when I would not have called myself a Christian. And in some ways, I almost regret that. Like, you know, my wife came to Christ later in life, and she's always been sort of jealous of me for having grown up steeped in this. And I'm always sort of jealous of her for having come to it uh, truly on her own later in life. But I was baptized when I was just a little boy, and I 
I did go through a period later in life, uh, particularly like late high school years and then into my college years, where I didn't begin to doubt necessarily um, because I've always felt this this intimacy with with God, and and I and I've never wavered in my belief. But I needed like the intellectual backing, so mm. I I went through a, a stretch of some years where I just tore through books and and uh, and lectures, and I would I would just try to interrogate my own beliefs. And I'm glad I did because I came out on the other side a much stronger believer than I was going in. But all the while, uh, I was sort of simultaneously growing disillusioned with the institution of the church in America, Mm -hmm. even as my personal faith was growing stronger. It's so fascinating to hear that you had this need, this urge for sort of the intellectual backing, right, um, of Christianity. I imagine a lot of that need comes from your father, right, and and the fact that he seemed to have taken, uh, uh, for a lot of his career, that same intellectual approach. I mean, early on, in the book, you write about how, I think, if I, if I remember correctly, your father began almost every one of his Sunday sermons with, um, you know, the famous prayer of our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, hallowed be thy name. At the end of that is the very, very famous line of, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And you titled your book that. What was it, what is it about that last line that so, you say it's captivated you since childhood? Yeah, it's 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 haunting in a lot of ways, and it always has been for me because, um, you know, we you think about uh, just statements that sort of make you stop in your tracks and and consider the implications, and to say uh, that, that that when you are praising God in that moment and saying that your thine yours yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. That is a, it is a singular possessive. In other words, there can be nothing else to compete. There can be no other kingdom. There can be no other power. There can be no other glory. It is yours and it is yours alone. And that's such a, it's such an awesome claim, but also obviously such a controversial claim. And so I can remember thinking as a, as a, first as a kid and then as a young man, sort of, wow, either that's true and it's the most fantastic, beautiful news in the history of the world, or it's not true and it's the greatest lie ever told, Mm. but it really can't be anything in between. Mm. That's interesting. Okay. I I, I wanted to spend a couple of minutes, Tim, if you didn't mind, um, kind of getting a deeper understanding of your relationship with your your own faith, because not very many maybe none, as far as I can remember, of America's top political reporters have spoken so openly about their personal beliefs. But of course, I mean, you're publishing this book at a time where the fact that you grew up in an evangelical church gives you a unique insight into what's been happening with American evangelicalism overall. So I, I appreciate the uh, what you've uh, been willing to reveal to us here. I, I want to... Um, if I could just play a little bit of a clip from your father uh, at the pulpit, Pastor Richard Alberta. This happens to be uh, during the last Sunday sermon he gave before, before dying. So this is Pastor Alberta from June 23, 2019. A couple of months ago, I got a note from a little boy named Chase 
I think he must be about seven or eight, and I just brought this one. I have hundreds of them at home, but I want to share this one with you. It says, Dear Pastor Alberta, thanks for being our old pastor. Cute little kid. Our old pastor for our church at Cornerstone, and thanks for being a great friend. Stay with Christ. <laughs> so I think I'm going to do that. Appreciate that note from Chase so much. A truly warm moment from uh, your father's last Sunday sermon. He was the leader of the Cornerstone Church for until recently, until he passed away, its entire existence. But he himself came into uh, Christianity as an adult, right? That's right. And it's a story that's uh, pretty unlikely. Um, My dad had been an atheist. He grew up in a broken, unbelieving home. He saw no use for religion in his life. And he uh, had a very successful career out of college. He went into finance and he wound up climbing his way up uh, into with, with a big banking company in New York. And my mother at the same time was working for ABC Radio in Manhattan. And so the two of them were strivers and they were quite successful. And they had a big house and a Cadillac. And then they gave birth to my oldest brother, Christopher. And everything seemed great from the outside looking in. And yet my dad felt this, just this, almost this despair, this, this rumbling emptiness. And, um, you know, he would say, looking back on it, that it wasn't, it wasn't depression. It's not, you know, he didn't, he wasn't, um, I guess the best way he would describe it was just to say that there was something so obviously missing, which made no sense at all because he had this beautiful wife and this beautiful firstborn son and this big house and this great job paying him a lot of money. And what could possibly be missing? And so this atheist at about 30 years old sort of set off on this search to find what was missing. And that search led him into this little church in the Hudson Valley called Goodwill. And my dad went in there one Sunday and listened to the gospel for the first time. And right then and there, he gave his life to Jesus. And it it just utterly transformed who he was. People who knew him, his brothers and, and my mom, who was not yet a Christian, and his friends, everybody who knew him said that he became like an alien to them, that he was you know waking up at four in the morning and spending hours silently meditating and reading scripture. And, and, and they just didn't know what to make of this guy. And And then something even more dramatic happened not long after that. He felt the Lord calling him to the ministry, to go to seminary and to preach uh, the word of God. And this is really when people thought he'd lost his mind. I mean, basically, and I'm not exaggerating this. I mean, his, his, basically his entire family cut him off. They, they basically stopped talking to him. They thought that he was a loon. And uh, my mom had become a Christian by this point. She thought he was a bit of a loon too. But the next thing you know, they were selling all of their possessions and uh, going to seminary. And for the next couple of decades... They basically just lived off of food stamps and worked in small churches around the country and had traded this very glamorous life for something that was decidedly unglamorous, but that was what they felt the Lord leading them to do. Mm. And so when Cornerstone was first founded, you said there were like a couple of hundred uh, 
uh, congregants, but by the time your father passed away, there were several thousand, right? That's right. Uh, the church had grown tremendously. Um, when we arrived, when I was a little boy, yeah, it was a very small, uh, pretty modest church. And, um, you know, some of this owed to just where we were. My hometown is at the intersection of two highways uh, outside of Detroit. And uh, and obviously there was some people moving in, but also my dad was just outstanding in the pulpit and he drew some pretty big crowds. Well, Tim Alberta is our guest today. He's author of The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. And for the first part of this conversation, we're talking about Tim's father, Pastor Richard Alberta, because his journey through his personal faith, through through Christianity, uh, is an important one for all of us to understand because it gets us to this question of evangelicalism in the country as a whole, which we will talk about when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash OnPoint. That's Indeed.com slash OnPoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Tim Alberta is our guest today. He's one of the country's top political reporters. He also grew up in the evangelical church, and he's been doing a lot of examination of the major changes that have happened in the church over the past years, let alone decades. And the result is the new book, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. Um, And Tim, there's just something I need to get out of my system, if you don't mind. Uh, Listening to you speak so beautifully about your father um, really grips my heart (laughs) because uh, my father passed away last year and the Mm. overwhelming, this like overwhelming need and urge to look back and and examine the, the, the great heights and the valleys of these towering figures in our lives is very, very powerful. And I, uh, I deeply appreciate how you use your father's life as an example for us all in terms of understanding the country better. So, um, I'm going to screw my journalist head back on here. Oh, Magna, I'm so, but thank you for sharing. I'm so sorry to hear that. Oh, that it's okay. I mean, right, life has its cycles. But again, it's just, um, it's a very rare thing, I think, for especially someone like you, right, who who reports in Washington to say, no, I'm going to step back and use this this portion of my life, which I don't talk about, you know, in the Atlantic or in, the politi- in Politico very much, especially because all of us as Americans, regardless of our faith or not faith, really need to understand the evangelical church, um, and Trump, which is ultimately what your book is about. So um, it's reaching me intellectually and emotionally, Tim. <laughs> That's all I wanted to say. Now, you know, your, your father, the, one of the most captivating things about him as a figure in your life and in the, in the Cornerstone Church is that you, you tell us that he begins his um, 
life as a Christian being, you said earlier, like a very intellectually grounded um, examiner and believer in the Bible. But then, in your own words, he becomes an apologist for Donald Trump, who, as you write, is the least, you know, the least uh, Christian, the least evangelical of any possible president we've ever had. Can you take a minute to describe that change in your father? Yeah, I mean, so I think that there's there's sort of a, a long arc of the story, but the short version of it is that, you know, for most of my life, um, my dad was, uh, you know, we, we didn't talk about politics at home. It wasn't something that our family was really engaged with. It was just, it wasn't, it really wasn't like a, a dinner table topic of conversation. I would say that the one thing that we did talk about in the context of politics was always character. It was integrity. It was uh, morality. The idea that if you are going to be in a position of leadership of any kind, but, but especially political leadership, then character is a prerequisite for that. And so one of the formative moments for me as a kid was living through the Clinton impeachment and I can just remember how upset my parents were at this idea that the president of the United States, who should be a role model for the nation's youth, was carrying on this extramarital affair and was lying about it and uh, just showed such a, a, a grotesque lack of character. And in fact, uh, I can remember my parents holding a little viewing party in our living room with some friends from church when George W. Bush was inaugurated in January of 2001, not because they really liked Bush that much. It was because they were celebrating the return of character to the Oval Office. I mean, that's, that's, that was sort of the environment that I was raised in. I think what happened over the next, you know, 15, 20 years— with, with my father, with my home church, is really representative of what's happened with the evangelical movement more broadly, which is to say that as the walls began to close in, as they saw it, in other words, as, as the culture wars were lost, as the country became, became more and more secular, less Christian, um, the country was sort of, the ground was moving beneath the feet of the church, and the culture was becoming something unrecognizable. And I think that sort of shifted the goalposts for a lot of Christians, whereas once they demanded this level of, of, of moral rectitude, mm. moral fiber from their leaders, suddenly they were beginning to panic over the future of the country, over the loss of sort of Judeo-Christian values in society. And they began to sort of look about to say, well, who can, who can save us from this? Who can protect us from this? Now, I, I should make clear, Magna, that, you know, Donald Trump was the last of the 17 Republican candidates in 2016 whom my dad wanted to see elected. And that is pretty well borne out in a lot of the polling. It's easy to forget now. But back in 2016, white evangelicals were Trump's softest supporters. Mm. It, it really wasn't until the general election against Hillary Clinton when many of them began to rally around him. And that was effectively a transactional relationship. He gave them policies that they wanted and they gave him their votes. But that transactional relationship then began to morph into something else entirely. Right. Well, but 
hadn't that uh, that morphing begun e- even decades earlier? Because there's something also that you write in the book about things that you sensed uh, as a as a boy in your father's church. Because this was a time where already, right, or actually not just already, but for for several for many years, um, conservative Christians weren't just um, voting their beliefs, but it's that politics had already come into the church, right? Because we had the uh, the relationship between socially conservative Christians, you know, like the moral majority, uh, focus on the family, those groups, having made a pact with fiscal conservatives, essentially. Um, you know, that was what the a lot of the early 1980s was all about. And you, you saw that in your church, right? Yeah, no question. And I think, I think what maybe I'm trying to describe... Uh, with some texture here is the degree to which, you know, politics being in the church became politics uh, permeating the church and then ultimately became almost politics taking over the church, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So there, there was sort of this progression, right? And, and no two congregations are the same. No two pastors are the same. But at least as far as I saw it, that kind of mission creep, I mean, let me, and let me, let me spell this out even more plainly. So the only issue for most of my life that I'd ever heard, the only political issue that I'd ever really heard my dad get into from the pulpit was abortion. Uh, there, there may have been some other things here and there, but but uh, that was the the prevailing political sentiment uh, when my dad would would who was a staunch pro life advocate, um, and I came to view abortion as almost like a gateway drug for a lot of evangelicals, which is to say that because they didn't view. Uh, abortion as a political issue. They viewed it as an ethical issue, as a moral issue, as a spiritual issue. Therefore, they felt that there was no problem uh, sort of mobilizing their congregations around abortion when it came to, you know, to to voting. Um, The problem, of course, is that when you become so deeply invested in an issue like that and you attach serious existential eternal stakes to an issue Mm. like that, well, then it becomes the red team that is on your side, they're, they're the allies, and the blue team that's on the other side, they're the enemies. And suddenly that starts to become like a proxy war. Partisan politics, everyday partisan disputes become this proxy for good versus evil. And that was the sort of thing I began to sense more and more creeping into the church. Right. Well, by the time uh, your father passed away, which was 2021, um, uh, 2019. 2019, sorry. Yes. Sorry, I was thinking, I don't even know why I was thinking about 2021. 2019, thank you for the correction, Tim. Um, The the politics being infused into not only um, many churches around the country, but into the congregation of your father's church was so evident, right? Because you write in the book about how... um, People during your father's funeral uh, or a little bit after came up to you and some gave you, you know, comfort and care. But others were talking to you about how you had betrayed the church because of some of your reporting. Now, what I'd like to hear actually um, more is what happened just after that, because you tell quite an incredible story of a letter that was given to you. uh, What that that day, but you received it the next day and it was from an elder in the church. Can you tell us about that? That's right. So, yeah, just the day of my dad's funeral after I'd given the eulogy. And in fact, in the eulogy, I kind of made a point 
of pausing and reflecting on all of these folks who the day before at the at the wake were confronting me about politics, wanting to argue about politics. And I just sort of paused in my eulogy and said, you know, really? Like, is this who we are as a church? Like, you know, what are we doing here? And kind of issued a rebuke. And I don't know, maybe I shouldn't have done that. I, I, I don't know. I've kind of gone back and forth. But in any event, after I did that, and after we went to the cemetery and we buried my father, we were back home at my my parents' house, and a nice church lady who was preparing a meal for us, she came over and handed me a note that had been left at the church. And that note was written by a longtime elder in the church, someone who was a friend of my father's, someone who'd known me since I was a little boy. And basically the note accused me of, uh, of basically of being a traitor, uh, that, that I was um, part of the deep state, that I was undermining God's ordained leader of this country, Donald Trump. And he told me that, uh, that there was still hope, that, that if I would use my journalism talents that God gave me to do a 180 and to investigate the deep state and to exonerate Donald Trump, then I would be forgiven. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's, it was yeah. a pretty, it was a pretty, uh, a pretty devastating moment, but also a pretty eye-opening mm. moment because, boy, if if that's the way that you are willing to treat, not just a grieving son, but a grieving son who you know so well, and uh, boy, then how are you treating the outside world? Mm. That must have been extremely difficult, right? Because as you said, these are these are people who you grew up with right, as a son of a pastor and um, whose message they had heard from your father just as you did for so many years. Take this now to uh, to the national stage. I know a couple of years ago uh, you talked about how you were a little sheepish about answering uh, in an interview whether or not there's a divide or a crisis within the evangelical movement. I mean, how would you answer that now? Is there? Yeah, I mean, there's there's more than a divide. There's really a war happening within the evangelical church in America. And I think I was so reticent for so long to acknowledge that or, or to speak to it or, or, or even just to observe some of the, the um, really self-evident hypocrisies and, and deficiencies of the church. You know, and, and that's... Like, I, I feel ashamed in many ways looking back, but I think it's really hard for anyone who's a part of a community, a part of a tribe to, to, to sort of step out and to air the dirty laundry and to wag a finger in its direction. Um, look, if I'm being totally honest, I don't think I could have written this book while my dad was alive. Mm. I, I think it just would have been too painful and, and, and it would have caused strain in our relationship. Um, and so in some ways, it took that, <laughs> that ordeal at his funeral for me to really feel this nudging to say, okay, like, what are we doing here? And, and can I play a role in, in maybe reclaiming this? I mean, listen, I just, I can't emphasize enough that when we talk about, you know, evangelicals, when we talk about white evangelicals, I mean, we're talking about tens of millions of people in this country, mm -hmm. right? And there is absolutely an extremism that has infiltrated some chunk of that population. But there are also huge numbers of these people, I would argue still a majority of these people who are horrified by what they've seen inside the church. And 
they too are looking for some way to reclaim it. But it's really hard to find your voice in this moment when that extremist faction has gotten so loud and so organized and so influential. And so, yes, there is this deep, deep schism now inside of the church. And that's what I've tried to explore in the book. Yeah. So just tell me a little bit more about... um... I mean, the whole book is about that schism, so you can't tell me just a little bit more. But, but you know, in hearing this, we're, we are focusing um, exclusively on the schism or the emerging schism within the evangelical movement in the United States. But for that, uh, that minority of uh, extremists, as you, as you see them as a minority, I wonder if other um, analysts would say the same. But anyway, for that minority to have become as powerful and influential as it is— they need to have become power, influential with people outside of evangelicalism, right? So I'm talking about, like, does not the Republican Party as a whole play a role in um, exacerbating the divides within the evangelical church in this country? Oh, sure. And, yeah. I, and you know, look, you, you very much should, can and should view the crack-up of the American evangelical church in parallel to the crack-up of the Republican Party. What we've seen in a lot of ways uh, is, is almost a carbon copy in terms of this sort of emboldened extremist fringe encroaching upon the mainstream and then steadily almost becoming the mainstream uh, because of what I just described a minute ago that, you know, if you think about Donald Trump's takeover of the Republican Party, which... I had spent my entire first book mm-hmm. trying to trying to document. It happened in part because so many normal, reasonable, mainstream Republicans just sort of shrugged and said, "Well, this is nothing to worry about. It'll take care of itself." You know, we th- th- like we just need to you know go about our business here. They didn't take it seriously, and they didn't take it seriously until it was too late. And then once Trump had sort of. Um, uh, really put the party in a headlock, they kind of just, you know, they, they went along with it because they didn't, they, you know, they didn't want to ruffle feathers. They didn't want to alienate their friends and allies. They didn't want to lose their tribal membership. And that exact same thing is happening in the church. Uh, you've, I mean, I, I can tell you, honestly, like I don't have a Bible here, but if I did, I'd put my hand on it. So in my inbox right now, my email inbox from my personal website that I keep open, that I keep my address listed so people can reach out to me. I probably have 500 emails in the last week since I started doing this media tour. And I would say probably four-fifths of those emails are from people who have basically said the exact same thing, which is that, thank you for saying this. I have been in the exact same position in my church, but I've been terrified to say anything. Mm. I've been I've been terrified to speak out. I've been terrified to confront the the craziness around me because I'm just feeling paralyzed. I don't know what to do. And that message is exactly what you heard from Republicans during during the sort of Trumpist takeover of the party. So there has to be a certain level of of courage and accountability inside the tent here. And, and I own, my, my, my great regret is that I found my own voice here far too late. Okay. You know, um, the great challenge that, uh, that we have on the radio is that it's impossible to really get as deeply as I'd ever like into a very thoroughly uh, and profoundly researched book like yours. So I do want to mention that the book has a lot of very, very great um, 
uh, chapters on individuals, uh, important individuals in the evangelical movement um, from various points of view. We'll talk about one or two of them, uh, Tim, when we come back. And I'd also then like to sort of just uh, push our analysis here of uh, Trump in particular and his why, why so many in the in evangelical America find him um, almost as their, their new savior. So we'll talk about that when we come back. This is On Point. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Tim Alberta is with us. His new book is The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. Uh, Tim, there are lots of terrific chapters in the book where you describe in detail um, what's happened in particular churches and some uh, very important names in this sort of crisis that you explore in the evangelical church. And one of them is David Barton. He's been in the news recently because, as you know better than anyone else, uh, he's uh, reportedly associated with Trump's uh, campaign for a second term uh, or a return to the White House, uh, which is quite interesting because David Barton fundamentally believes there should be no division between church and state. So here's an example of that. Barton's preaching at the Bethel Baptist Church in Richmond Hill, Georgia in 2022 as part of the American Restoration Tour. And here's Barton quoting Reverend Charles Finney, a 19th century minister. He said the church must take right ground in regard to politics. He said politics are part of a religion in a country as this, and Christians must do their duty to the country as part of their duty to God. So, Tim, uh, for the book, you essentially embedded yourself in the American Restoration Tour for some time. What's it all about? Well, in many ways, it is about restoring an America that never existed, uh, if I can just be blunt about it. Um, David Barton and his partner, Chad Connolly, who was the former faith-based outreach guy for the Republican National Committee, basically the guy who many evangelicals credit with helping to mobilize the masses of evangelicals to get Trump elected back in 2016. These two are now traveling around the country, going into churches, and effectively it is a it is a call and response. It is a symbiotic presentation. So David Barton gets up uh, for about 30 or 40 minutes, and and basically gives this wildly distorted and and, and very uh, you know selective manipulated version of American history to basically argue that America was obviously founded explicitly as a Christian nation that Christians are meant to be in charge of our government in charge of all of the institutions of society that church and state is a myth that really. Uh, you know, theocracy is not at all uh, antithetical to what the founders had envisioned as a governing framework for this country. And, and, and I would take it a step further. What, what Barton really tries to do is not just present that history as an academic exercise, 
but then contrast it with where we are today with secular leftist progressive elites who are running the country, who are indoctrinating your children, who are grooming your children, who are coming after your churches and basically scaring these churchgoers that they're presenting to saying, look, your, your country, your kingdom, this American kingdom, this, this divine nation blessed by God, it is being overrun. It is under attack. And then Chad Connolly, who's the sort of, you know, naked political operator, he gets up on stage afterwards and basically says, okay, you heard David Barton, you're, you, you know, this Christian nation has now been overrun by the pagans. What are you going to do about it? Mm. And basically issues a call to action to try to get these people to, to, to vote, not just to vote, but to volunteer, to do grassroots work, to, to get out in their communities and spread the gospel of Republican politics. And these guys have found enormous success, not just politically, but financially in doing so. Mm -hmm. What's so uh, interesting or uh, to me eye opening about your description of these various, like very influential um, evangelical and political hardliners is that um, it's having an impact not just on the rest of America through the uh, follow-on activities of people who who listen to the pastors and believe in them, but that it's actually redounding back into the evangelical movement through this crisis. I mean, there's a couple of chapters where you you write about how, um, for example, one in which Greg Locke, who is a very provocative pastor, he actually told you about his true beliefs, which weren't exactly in line with the Christian nationalism that he preaches, and that he's concerned that the very things that he's talking about would be a threat to the gospel of Jesus. Well, and Greg Locke is not alone. So yes, so just to zero in on Greg Locke for a moment, because he's a special case. So Greg Locke has built this massive tent revival church in Tennessee, where they have thousands of people that come out every week, and then he preaches to millions of people uh, through social media. He has an enormous following. And he is... I think by any objective metric, he is a radical. I mean, this is someone who uses his church to stage burnings of Harry Potter books, who talks about autistic children being oppressed by demons, who, uh, I mean, he, he calls out people in his own congregation as demonic and tells them to get out of his church. I mean, he, th- this is someone who is um, really quite a character and really who we would have viewed in recent memory as a cult fringe figure, someone who's not even deserving of our time and attention, except that now, as I just said, he has this massive following. So we have to take him seriously. We have to, we have to engage with him at some level. What I found so interesting in talking with Greg Locke, and this was universal in my conversations with a lot of figures on the far right of, of, of evangelicalism that I spent time sort of interrogating for this project, when you really put the screws to them and when you really inject the truth serum into their arm, they'll kind of do a little wink and nod and, and acknowledge that they don't really believe all this crazy stuff they're saying. In fact, to some degree, they're actually a little bit worried about the people in their congregations who are hearing them and then getting really carried away and, and, and talking about violence and, and, and taking this sort of militant approach to their enemies in the culture and, and almost doomsday prepping ready for like an American Armageddon. So they'll say that to me privately 
but they won't dare say it publicly mm-hmm. because, well, they have every incentive to sort of keep this ruse going. And, 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 that's, and it's incredibly disingenuous, but obviously also quite dangerous. Tim, I have to ask you, when someone like Greg Locke sits across from you and gives you that wink and nod, how do you stay calm? How do you not want to just scream out, how dare you corrupt the teachings of the Jesus Christ that I know and believe in. Can I get theological with you for a moment? Of course. It's part of the reason why you wrote this book. (laughs) Yeah. So um, because there's nothing new under the sun, Mm. um, Jesus talks in the Gospels about blind guides, right? Uh, So so think about a a tour guide, right? But a tour guide who is blind. And, And a blind guide being someone who walks into a pit and not only they themselves walk into a pit, but they lead their followers into a pit. Um, This is nothing new. Jesus warns repeatedly against false teachers, against false prophets. Not only that, Jesus warns repeatedly against the religious elite who uh, walk around with their chests puffed out, uh, claiming to have the the, the sort of the the pure, righteous uh, message of God's kingdom in their possession when in fact they are entirely blinded to what the kingdom of God really is. So I I take encouragement, if you can call it that, in the fact that uh, we've seen this before, we're seeing it now, we will see it again. There will always be people who try to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ for personal, political, financial gain. And I think really the question is, who's going to do something about it? Who's going to stand up to it? Who's going to push back on it? And for far too long, there haven't been those willing to do so. And so in some small measure here, that's, I guess, what I'm attempting to do. Okay. So this leads me to a question which I've been very eager to ask you, Tim, um, because you've described both here and, of course, in the book very clearly a lot of threads which have been in the public discussion for a while, right, that uh, that starting in the 80s there was this uh, coming together of uh, socially conservative Christians and, as I mentioned, the fiscally conservative Republicans that started to bring more political power to the evangelical movement. Um, and then, you know, we come along with the uh, – the growing, let's say, uh, reduction in in uh, Christians in the United States and uh, the success, some of the political successes uh, that they had, and as you spoke about earlier in the show, this panic, this terror of uh, secular America becoming more and more powerful, the cultural uh, piece there, all leading towards this very, very surprising embrace at the tail end of 2016 of Donald Trump. So with that in mind, it's the book was so fascinating to me because you just mentioned false prophets, right? And the story of Greg Locke with his, I don't know what to call it, um, I don't know, a gaudy, holy, pseudo-holy carnival, if I can just put it that way. I mean, Trump makes a lot of sense in that context. And if I can just take a minute to tell a quick story. Uh, several years ago, early 2015, uh, mid-2015, I interviewed a... Um, a person who is a college president in the Massachusetts area. Now, he happened to also be a a former pastor from North Carolina. And after our interview, we were talking about, you know, national politics, uh, just sort of casually as uh, points of conversation. And he looked at me and he said, you know, you have no idea the hold Trump is going to have on evangelical Christians. And I was Mm -hmm. like, I was like, 
why? What? What are you talking about? And he said, you know, in the churches that he was either a part of or had um, attended in North Carolina, and it's an interesting state, (laughs) first and foremost. But he looked at me and he said, they have been primed for this for years. I mean, not just in the direct political messaging, but just even in the form, the the way uh, that a lot of preachers in many of the big churches you know, um, use the pulpit. This is a very muscular, very masculine, authoritarian kind of leadership in the church that's celebrated and worshipped. So they look at Trump and they see the same thing. And I I put that story to you, Tim, because I'm really just trying to understand fundamentally the why of Trump. Because for a movement that's been changing for 40 years, why did it all coalesce around this character? Well, I think, boy, the simplest answer is probably this. Um, we, we, we know that in politics, the man must meet the moment, right? Or the woman must meet the moment. That, that so much of, you know, our, our political system is sort of built around timing. Barack Obama couldn't have been elected president in 2000. And I don't think Donald Trump could have been elected president even in like 2008, right? The country wasn't ready for him. But I think both the Republican Party and more specifically, the evangelical church was ready for a Trump-like figure by the time 2016 comes around. You know, some of the most fascinating conversations I had in the course of this book was with people who, you know, pastors, church leaders, uh, theologian types, who will sort of describe how in some way Trump's superpower is that he is not a Christian, that he is not bound by biblical etiquette, that he does not pray their prayers, that he does not sit in on their sermons, that he has this ability to, um, it's almost like when George W. Bush said that he had to, uh, in order to protect the free market, he had to first jettison free market principles with the bank bailouts. Mm. There's something similar happening here where for a lot of Christians who really believe that the sky is falling and the end is near and that if something dramatic isn't done very quickly, that they're going to lose their country, they're going to lose their churches, all of it, that... They look to Trump and they sort of have decided, well, maybe the first step to preserving Christian virtue in this country is to first do away with Christian virtue. And that sounds so crazy to those on the outside listening. But I will just tell you, Magna, like the COVID-19 pandemic was a perfect example of this, how You know, for decades, evangelicals who grew up in the spaces that I grew up in, we marinated in this messaging around this eventual cosmic clash between the good God-fearing Christians in this country and the evil secular elitists who were going to come for the church. They were going to shut down the church. They were going to persecute Christians. They were going to purge Christianity from public life. So you fast forward to 2019 when all of these blue state governors start issuing executive orders, closing down churches churches in their Mm -hmm. states. That was like a prophecy being fulfilled for a lot of these people. And so when you're in that moment of of panic and persecution, you look for a strong man. We we see that throughout world history. And and in this case, it just so happens that that strong man is someone who shares absolutely none of the values of these people. And they've just decided that they're fine with it. Except for the fact that he was already president. Right. When the, the pandemic arrived. But um, I, mean, I take your point about um, 
what preceded it was this this shrinking of uh, an acceptable world as people saw it and, and therefore welcoming the strong man. I mean, it sounds almost exactly like the got to burn down the village to save it uh, way of thinking that we heard from you know previous wars. But Tim, we've got about two minutes left and I'd love to sort of end the conversation with the way that you bookend your entire your book because it'll help us look towards the future. Can you just take a, a minute and a half or so to tell us what happened with the person who uh, who inherited the pulpit from your father, Chris Winnens? What happened to him at first and now with the church? Yeah, so yeah, so Chris uh, Chris Winans, he's an amazing. Winans, sorry about that. Yeah, no, that's okay. He's got a weird name. Uh, he's an amazing guy, and he he was like the ideal heir apparent to take over the church from my dad. Uh, he's just, he's a brilliant scholar of the scriptures and he's humble and he's a gentle guy. The only problem is that he's not a conservative MAGA Republican. And so when he took over the church, uh, he was I, I just brutalized, frankly. Um, he, he was treated really terribly. A lot of people left the church because basically he was unwilling to use his pulpit to denounce Joe Biden and Black Lives Matter and to and critical race theory and to basically wade into these culture wars. He just wanted to preach the gospel and he wanted to try to disciple his people. Um, and it got to the point where he, he almost quit, where he almost walked away. Mm. And I and I was I was so worried about that happening because he was exactly the kind of guy that my home church needed. And the happy ending to that story, as I write about at the end of the book, was that he persevered and he stuck with it. And I think most importantly, Magna, he found his voice. He he found deep within him somewhere the courage to confront this craziness inside the church and to call these people back and to say, listen, the one we follow, this Jesus who died on the cross for our sins and who promised us citizenship in a kingdom not of this world, we we can only follow him if we take our eyes off of this idol of America, this idol of Donald Trump, and if we pursue that kingdom first. Well, Tim Alberta's new book is The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. Tim, this hour has absolutely flown by. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.